Hi, it's G3, and welcome to Green Marbles. While much of the world has re-emerged from COVID already, China's battle with the virus has taken on a much different trajectory. But now that China is opening up and taking concrete measures to stimulate their economy, the implications for the world look to be significant, particularly after the Chinese New Year. To discuss it all, I am joined today by both Jordi Visser and Mike Edwards of Weiss. So please check important disclosures at the end of the episode and join us for our discussion of China's impact on global markets. And with that, welcome. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning, G3. Good morning. Great to have you both on Green Marbles today for our second show of the year. And Jordy, I will just tell you, I clocked in at 91 for my sleep score yesterday. Wow. Oh, I'm feeling good. I came in at a 79. It was my lowest in, I would say, probably six weeks. I'm still going through the changes of focusing on my HRV. So my HRV is up about 60% from where it was in December. So I've been able to navigate getting my HRV up. My resting heart rate has gone down significantly as well, but it has come at the expense slightly of my overall sleep score. So you, you have a regime change going on with respect to what you're focusing in on with your sleep. I have made a fairly significant regime change involving wine. So, oh, All right. Well, we'll talk about that at some point in the future. Mike, I noticed no ring on you, but just to kick things off, how did you sleep last night? I actually slept very well last night. I slept terribly the night before, so maybe I was due. That's the extent of my detailed analytics. Okay. That, that's a, a New Year's resolution to start measuring that better. Excellent. Very can't, can't imagine. Can't imagine where I got inspired that inspiration from. <laughs> can't imagine. All right. So, so far in 2023, I have to say that the morning meetings, they have been crackling with energy. Very buzzy, good stuff happening. And the rapidly evolving dynamics in China, I think, have been a key reason. So I am very happy to do this episode today to log in early in the year with our audience, exactly how you guys are seeing things playing out in China and most importantly, its impact on global markets. Jordi, before we turn to Mike, if you could set the table for us on our show last week, you indicated that China's reopening is perhaps the biggest factor that traders and investors are going to need to keep watch over as the year unfolds and as they modify their playbook. Can you just reiterate your views on the importance of China's growth to the overall market story in 23? Sure. And last week we talked a lot about it. I didn't get into specific numbers because we were talking about an entire kind of viewpoint of different areas where there could be surprises. But I think people should understand that in the years from 2013 to 2021, China was responsible for 30% of global growth. So the global growth from 2013 to 2021, China was responsible for 30% of it. And last year, no matter which measurement you use, China was basically for them in a recession. If you throw Europe in the same thing after the Russia invasion of Ukraine, the world was focused on the Fed and central banks tightening and fighting inflation while growth was peaking coming out of the money 
printing press in the Western world, but China was already in a recession. So when you get to a point where you end the year where the 10-month average of new orders in China or their PMI, it was only lower in the first quarter of 2009. So you've had a scenario that their economy has been as weak as possible. And when you're looking for kind of the different points to focus on, we all know that the Fed is running near the end of the tightening cycle. We all see that inflation has been headed down at a fairly sharp pace. And we have another inflation data point this week. What hasn't happened yet is China hasn't grown. And what we're talking about is very likely at this point that China is going to have a growth spurt this year where they're going to increase significantly from last year because they've been putting a tremendous amount of stimulus in. And I mentioned in the morning meeting today that Morgan Stanley wrote a really good report on China overnight, and they took up their GDP forecast this year to about 5.7%. And the argument made in there was that for the first time in four years, you had all three parts moving together in terms of things you should be focused on for China. One is the regulatory crackdown has got now a positive side to it. Mike can speak more to that. At the same time, you've had the stimulus going in, but there is an absolute focus on getting the economy up. So you have those two pointed in the same way. And then finally, the abrupt change that happened in December is the fact that the zero COVID policy, although not announced as we're getting rid of it, they have a big wave going on. And while this wave is happening, it's looking more and more like we're going to be at a position where they're going to live with it to some degree. So when you get through Chinese New Year, I expect that the surprise is going to be this year that GDP in China is going to come back. PMIs are going to go higher and that has to be incorporated. I'm just going to add one more thing in there to start this off. China will be exporting tourism again. And I think people have to start realizing how much of those numbers have been gone for the last few years. So you're going to have an impact that's going to happen. Mike, Jordy um, just gave a good sort of overall, I mean, I think you just gave the TLDR of the whole podcast, Jordy, but (laughs) (laughs) let's go a little bit deeper here. But look, our audience is smart, well-informed, but the developments in China are coming at a pretty fast pace. So... What I would like to do here is have you just give kind of a synopsis of where things stand with respect to China's COVID policy and attempt to reinvigorate the economy. So Jordy gave, I agree, the, the TLDR from sort of an economic standpoint and what is the impact on global measures, not just Chinese. I'll give you the sort of policy framework TLDR, which is that the Beijing backstop is back. And the Beijing backstop is back, baby? I've... I'm going to work on another B. We'll get there. Okay. But I like it. All right. I think the importance of this, and let's start with a a little bit of a framework before we go into the specific changes. But the importance of this is over the last two months, so since the National People's Congress, and you will remember maybe this is your your other B, we described that as being brazen as in terms of Xi's consolidation of power. There was a lot of, there was fear in the market for a host of different reasons. It was an extension of the view that China was uninvestable from sort of a rule of law standpoint. And what you've had, if we had to characterize it with a phrase since then, has been U-turns on a number of different policies. The COVID policy, the zero COVID policy is the headline one that I think the market is appropriately most focused on, but there's a host of them. So before we go into that, it is worth saying how... Do we get confidence in the regime's confidence? Meaning, are these actual U-turns that 
result in more certainty and planning ability and risk-taking by investors? Or is it a snapshot where we're actually on a policy roundabout and there's a bunch of potential randomness and other forces and it just looks like a U-turn at the moment? Put me in the camp of reliable changes here because that's part of the point. But I do think that's an evaluative question and that's the way to think about if the enthusiasm right now is wrong or misplaced, it will be because there are more policy changes, including around the common prosperity discussion points that we've we've touched on over the last, frankly, couple of years at this point. But in general, I think there's two layers to think about enthusiasm. In the short term, it is that reopening and normalization. We've had very suppressed activity, mostly because of the COVID lockdowns, but for other regulatory reasons as well. And can we get back to pace? It certainly appears that that's what markets are pricing in or have started to price in. And then we're going to evaluate to Jordy's point after Lunar New Year. So then the next layer of the of this framework is how hard does the government have to push to achieve its goals? And what I want our audience to think about is the need to overshoot right now. There was a, I think, consensus coming out of December's policy meetings is that they're softly targeting a 5% growth rate. That's coming from a what is effectively a negative growth rate ending the year. And in order to achieve that, getting just to 5% is, is there's a real risk of underclubbing it. So are they going to underclub it or seek to overshoot? At this point, I would say that the overall tone is to see kind of every available spigot being turned right now. And I do think that the goal is to overshoot and to sort of reinvigorate Jordy's term, animal spirits. And then the next layer is what are the specific policies? And we can spend more time on, on each of these, but I'd like to try to keep it brief and say that on the COVID front, we've had the lockdowns are over. It's sort of that simple. But in addition to that, you also have an opening up, a reopening to the phrase in Chinese is, has significance beyond just... Come on, let's hear the phrase with your Ch- perfect pronunciation. I'm, now I'm sure to put, but Chongkai is re- literally reopening, but it has significance beyond just what we would have said in the U.S. of schools back, businesses back, whatever. It's also, importantly, borders reopening. And Jordy mentioned, like, watch tourism, watch things like that. The Chinese are issuing passports and visas again. Borders are reopened. The Hong Kong border is porous for the first time in three years. This is a very big deal in terms of a change in mentality. And it's not just a six-month change in policy. It's much broader than that. The other fronts that, you know, I do think the property market and credit markets are very important. We can spend a lot of time on this, but we've basically gone from a restrictive, the Xi Jinping quote was, you know, housing is for living, not for speculating from that mentality and a bunch of restrictions among them, the three red lines to what are now labeled the three arrows of expanding bank financing, bond markets and equity financing, and basically just turning the spigots. So that may be a bandaid over a gaping wound, but all the same, it's accommodative right now. And and that's working and we see evidence of that in markets. And then I think the two more that probably are getting less attention, one of them is in terms of tech regulations in particular and the sort of common prosperity justified crackdown on those platforms. You've seen sub IPOs sort of make progress for companies like Ant Financial and JD's subsidiary. You've seen video games re-allowed in waves for the first time in in a long period, there's a host of measures which are all pointed in the same direction, which is very important. And then you've had explicit commentary that effectively, if I'm summarizing it, most of our work is done here. And then the last area from a foreign facing standpoint, 
there's been much more conciliatory rhetoric rather than combative rhetoric down to things like letting U.S. auditors access books and records of ADRs, down to re-importing Australian coal again. And there's a dozen more minor ones beyond that. But that is a massive change in tone, right, from where we were in, let's call it July, August, September, and yet another U-turn. So all of these, I think, in the same direction, you know, you can imagine if that's the policy characterization, what a lot of these, the charts of, you know, Hong Kong tech look like, et cetera. I just want to press you on this. Because as we've talked about, the virus doesn't care what the PRC says and does. And while I take your point that there is a huge amount of stimulus, the Beijing backstop is back. It is also the case that the virus is sweeping virtually unchecked through the nation, as you well know. One Shanghai hospital recently referred to it as a a tragic battle that they're preparing for. Is there any chance in your mind that the PRC reverses course here and goes back to the lockdowns because it does seem like the virus is still in a situation where it can threaten a lot of lives? How unshakable is the commitment of the Chinese government to open up? I don't want to say never. I don't want to say impossible, but pretty close to that. This is... You know, changing this policy has been steering an aircraft carrier or battleship, whatever the naval metaphor is, and they've moved the rudder, clearly. And I think the rhetoric that's accompanying, I mean, we already talked about reopening as a phrase that is now everywhere, right? A lot of these are conceptually irreversible. I do think we've all sort of been, in some cases, reluctant, in some cases, not reluctant armchair epidemiologists for the last three years at the risk of diving into that. I don't see that restricting activity or restricting economic activity in particular is going to have much of an effect given that it's already loosened, that you already have as much interaction. So is the intent herd immunity or other things like unintentionally or intentionally? I suppose so. But to me, that aspect, even epidemiologically, is irreversible. And then secondly, I think at the risk of being crass about loss of life and hospitals being overwhelmed, we're not going to know about it. Those phenomena are going to be suppressed by the censors. And from a rhetorical standpoint, from a propaganda standpoint, the push is to open, not to fear the disease. And that is like the change in mindset took a lot of intentionality to achieve. They're in the midst of achieving it. But the worst thing they could do in terms of sort of broader goals, legitimacy, fears of hypocrisy would be to reverse midstream. So they would lose all credibility. All right. Well, Look, Jordy, Mike has made a compelling case here for China's determination to unlock excess savings, to reinvigorate risk-taking. But you believe that commodities are not going to boom in response to this. And I think that's somewhat counterintuitive to some. Can you explain your rationale there? Yeah, and I think it's important, but I just want to make sure, because we did a podcast back in October, I think, on China, and Mike and I both talked about, after the 20th Party Congress, the way long-term investors were going to view China and how this was going to be a difficult place for people to make long-term investments. None of that's changed. As much as Mike and I are talking about what's gone on for this year, I just want to make sure that people listening understand We focus on markets as a firm, both on the long term, but then we look for short term inflection points on things that have an impact. And your question towards commodities is important. So let me go towards if growth does accelerate in China the way we're talking about, just like it did in the U.S., just like it did in most places around the world, the immediate 
spending is going to happen on the tourism side. It's going to happen on the consumption side. It's going to be people going out. And those numbers, I just want to make sure because I brought them up briefly. In 2019, the FT just had this in these numbers, I guess it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago, 155 million Chinese tourists around the globe in 2019, spending $255 billion, so a quarter of a trillion dollars. Now, if you go through the prior three years and aggregate them, you're getting close to $750 billion and you're getting close to 500 million tourists. Now, if you go through the countries that are most involved in that, it's Asia, believe it or not. So the eight of the top nine countries in terms of tourists are actually in Asia. The U.S. comes in at number seven. Japan, just to give you an idea, 30% of the tourists that Japan had in 2019 were Chinese. Wow. So that's incredible. You're dealing with unleashing to the globe Chinese to travel. The joke has been, okay, they're not going to come back. But regardless, there's going to be traveling going on. The other thing you have to really focus on, so fixed asset investment in real estate, which has been a direct overlay, not just for crude, which I've mentioned on this podcast, but it has a huge implication over the years for commodities. Currently, year over year, it's at minus 8.3%. If this had occurred a year ago, when rates in the U.S. were still zero and we still had housing accelerating around the globe, I would have thought this would have had a major impact on commodities. But the reality is we're not in that situation. The Fed has raised rates up towards 5%. Global housing market is basically in, I mean, prices are dropping around the globe. It's not just in the U.S. And commercial real estate's being impacted as well. So if you've got a China situation where I don't think the locals who've also lost confidence in the government are going to jump back into long-term purchases, and that's what housing is. At the end of the day, you're going to make short-term decisions. And if you ask the question, well, what's the chance that they reverse the policy? There's no way that people are going to make long-term decisions on housing and anything that would be driven by commodities without confidence in this. And I don't think that's going to change. I don't think the Taiwan risk is going to leave people's minds. So I think this is going to have a positive impact on commodities and the fact that I think the floor is set. Because if you get China growth back up to 5.7, that means you're going to take fixed asset investment into real estate at least back to zero growth. Maybe it goes to 2%. Maybe it goes to 3%. But when you had commodity growth, you were dealing with double digits. So I think the hard part of China, meaning the physical side, I've made the joke before. They colonized Mars. I don't think there's going to be another colonization in China. And so it's really hard to get it going. And so for commodities, I would just say the floor is in. There should be a trend back up if China does grow. But I don't see anything that we saw like when we had shortages during the COVID situation. As a follow-up to that, though, the move in the metals, specifically copper, silver, has been pretty significant. So is it fair to say then that your view is that there are other forces driving that besides China? Well, I think what's happening is there's an early cycle phase to metals that traditionally last, meaning if you think there's going to be stimulus, you look at early cycle versus late cycle. Late cycle is energy. Early cycle tends to be housing. Housing tends to be more focused on, at least from the way commodities trade, from the copper side. So you're generally going out to buy a lot of copper if all of a sudden you're going to be doing stuff. I think the other thing is the climate change, the electricity side, everything pretty much on the metals has this kind of thought process and we've got a supply situation there. So whenever demand picks up, 
I think there's a supply situation that becomes part of the speculation. But I think this is just people getting ahead of what they expect in China. And unfortunately for energy and for crude, we're still in a wave right now. So if people are buying metals to prepare for what they expect GDP to be better in the future, and for those who remember what it was like when you had the opening of the U.S. economy, metals soared. And the reason metals soared is because people started ordering ahead of time before they knew they'd be doing stuff because they'd been shut down. And I'm sure that's what's happening in China. I just think on the commodity side, you're dealing more with trade. You're dealing more with the global economy. It's more real time. It's late cycle. And since most people expect a recession in the U.S. next year, it's very hard for crude to be doing well, which means the metals make the most sense at this point to people. Got it. Okay. Well, let's talk about things within the context of the U.S.-China relationship, Mike. I don't know if you're going to agree with this or not. My sense is that Brussels seems to be a little bit more conciliatory in tone than the U.S. Seems like it is still the case that one of the few things that politicians across the U.S. can agree on is vigilance towards the PRC. As it relates to the markets, Mike, as the year plays out, What's your take on whether or not we are likely to get a positive or negative surprise out of the U.S.-China relationship? Do you think it's more likely we're going to step our foot on the gas and talk even tougher? Or might there be things to sort of ease tensions and promote a better working relationship? From a headline standpoint, I would assume the headlines continue to skew negative. The press is skewed that way, and I agree with the assessment on it sort of being bipartisan. Having said that, my broader view and from a trend standpoint is that 2023 is going to be a year in China focused on sort of the standing up of the Chinese consumer as the number one policy goal. And I use the phrase standing up in contrast to the we talked before about the lying flat movement and sort of double meaning there. But if that's the focus and it's a domestic focus, then I think the need to create excuses, as it were, for sacrifice through nationalistic chest puffing on the foreign front are lower. And similarly, the idea of having help from abroad rather than having to combat headwinds certainly makes the job easier. You know, we've talked before about a sort of dual circulation policy. It's good if one is not, if they're, they're moving together at the same time rather than one having to offset the other. And particularly considering what among other things, foreign central banks are doing. That's a real concern. So from a, what have we seen as evidence of this so far? Well, we talked and Jordy was referencing when we were talking about the NPC summary, one of the big topics on the U.S.-China front was the semiconductor embargo, meaning tools and advanced semis for AI and things like that. China, we've sort of been waiting for a retaliatory measure and it hasn't come. And if anything, a lot of the conversations on the U.S.-China economic front have been more constructive. I mentioned the cooperation with respect to ADRs and books and records. The threat of delistings for ADRs has basically gone away at this point, which is a pretty big tone change from six months ago. I would challenge you to go find like big red headlines on Bloomberg (laughs) that attest to that tone change, but it is a very real one. So I think that trend is quite a bit different. Do I think there's going to be congressional delegations to Taiwan that inflame that issue? Absolutely. And as we've talked about, I think both sides continue to be invested in the sort of motivating symbolism of that topic, but I don't think it really goes anywhere. So headline basis, trends are negative. 
actual trends, <laughs> probably in my view, I think there's a lot of reasons to be constructive on that. I don't think that's, to Jordy's earlier point, a very long-term change. But as far as where the shorter-term inflection points are, we need to pay attention to some of what has surprised us positively over the last few months. Do you think that China's ongoing alliance with Russia, the virtual meeting that recently took place between Xi and Putin, for example, does that complicate matters for U.S.-China relations? Yes and no. I think it's a given that China is going to import a lot of Russian crude. Uh, it's a given that that relationship is optically strong, if not with question marks in the background. So I do think that that is going to be one of the biggest questions for sort of U.S. views of China. I also think that maybe the biggest room for actual headline positive surprise in the U.S.-China and the Europe-China relationship, more Europe even, is for China to potentially play a brokering role in an eventual Russia-Ukraine, I don't even know what to call it, but let's call it ceasefire or step down or something like that. And we have certainly seen, not to a ton of fanfare, but very clearly China, both behind the scenes and to some extent in front of the press, stepped on Putin's rhetoric about nuclear threats. And I think that's actually been pretty important as a sort of a check on that normalization. I don't think China's interested in seeing the use of tactical nukes normalized. And that is sort of a piece of evidence we've seen of the role that China can play. I think that's the biggest room for positive surprise later in the year, if and when that the ground is set for that. I think China's a, a sensible broker. Other countries like Turkey, for example, have leaned into that role. But I think China has the most credibility in that role. Even more than the U.S., I would think, to play that broker uh, role. The U.S. can't play that yeah, role. Right. Categorically, cannot. Very interesting. All right. Well, I'd like to end here by revisiting the phrase animal spirits. Jordy, you mentioned that the Chinese New Year is coming up. But I'm interested to hear from both of you. As we get past the Chinese New Year, what are the signs you will be looking at to determine if the efforts by the Chinese government to get animal spirits flowing again, what signs will you be looking at to see if that's working? For me, it's very simple and I won't spend a lot of time on it. It's going to be the assets that represent confidence in China. And again, this will be locally and in Asia. I don't think it's going to be long term, but you've already seen the currency strengthen significantly. The stock markets, both Hong Kong and the Hang Seng right now is above the 200-day moving average in a strong fashion. The local markets have not broken through yet. Both the Shenzhen, the China Next, and the Shanghai Composite are sitting just below. So I want to see those follow through and continue. And then very simply, I want to see the reaction in the PMI data. We've had very weak on the non-manufacturing and very weak on the manufacturing, particularly in the new order side. I mentioned the 09 period. When you go to data that's as weak over, let's say, a 10-month basis or 12-month basis for the PMIs, you should see an immediate surge when this comes out. So I think, you know, we get through the wave. So Chinese New Year just happens to match around the time that the wave should end. You're going to get a boost. And the question is, how big of a boost? And if it's having the impact that I think it will, you're also going to see a bounce in the U.S. PMIs, where the export orders have been extremely weak and been tracking the Chinese markets. And you should see it in the European ones. So again, I'm going to just finish it with China's growth before last year. It was 30% of global growth. They're only about 18% of global GDP, but of the delta over that period from 2013 to 2021, they were 
So you take them out of the equation, put them in a recession. If we're going to see everything, it should be very obvious in this, despite the fact that it's getting a lot of fanfare. And I would just add that I think the consumer behavior is going to be key, particularly like how do we actually measure consumer confidence? It's going to be a downtick in savings, which I mean, the degree of excess savings over the last year or so is massive watching that, which is obviously going to be a bigger lag than what Jordy talked about, I think is going to be really important. And then I think seeing follow through or measuring follow through from a a fiscal standpoint, which is really about credit expansion and M2 is also going to be really important. We just got, they didn't matter at all because of the December artifice, but we got that data today as it happens as we're recording. I think the numbers that come out in kind of February is too soon as well, but the March data for Feb is going to be particularly important as an example. And then on the policy front, I think coming back to our original discussion, I think the absence of a reversal is going to be really important. I like the way Louis Gov said that, you know, the Chinese authorities have a tendency to be a fun sponge. (laughs) So if, if they absorb the fun and reverse with talks of common prosperity, once again, emphasized and, you know, crackdowns on corruption and things like that, that would be the limiting factor. So unfortunately, some of that, which is a little bit more difficult to trade, is the absence of a negative. That's where I I would build in terms of slightly longer term than what Jordy's talking about, what I'll be looking for. All right. Thank you so much, gentlemen. This was great. Very, very helpful. Thanks, G3. Thanks, G3. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.